Good morning, church. The deeper that we get into the Sermon on the Mount, the more I've discovered that the passage haunts me throughout the week. Maybe haunts is not the right word, but it sticks with me. I keep returning to it in my mind over and over, uh, mulling it over. The, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are so rich that they, they kind of, uh, they make you do that. The teaching of Jesus is so deep and so rich that it makes you think about it. Uh, that's, that's just the nature of the beast. Last week we were in verses 17 through 20 of Matthew chapter 5. We've only just begun this wonderful sermon. And here we learned this principle that we need going forward. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, verse 17, but to fulfill it. And not just the law, but the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. That's its ultimate purpose. And Jesus, as its fulfillment, brings the law and the prophets to fruition. In other words, we're not throwing anything out as if we don't need it from the larger half of our Bible. Rather, we need Jesus to reveal it deeper to us. We need to go deeper into it with him. And where he reveals more, we embrace it. And where he changes the role of the law, we delight in it. So nothing of the Old Testament is abolished. It's filled up. It's brought to its fullness. So that's the principle that we need moving forward, especially into the, into the rest of chapter 5. And you'll remember last week that Jesus warned us of two p- potential mistakes that we can make on the path leading to righteousness, a deeper righteousness. Maybe you recall the two pits on either side of this path of antinomianism, that big expensive word that means cheap, presumptuous grace where we think we can just keep on sinning. That's the deep pit to hell on the left. And the deep pit to hell on the right is legalism where we think we can earn our salvation if we just keep the rules. Verses 17 through 20 got rid of both of those things. He tells us that a deeper righteousness is toward him. We can't relax any of his commandments according to verse 19. And in verse 20, we learn that we need to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Neither pit is the answer. Jesus wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So he doesn't want us to be content in our sin as if we're allowed to sin. And he wants us to adopt that deeper righteousness brought by the Spirit, not just a surface-level keeping of the rules. And in our text today, this balance, this balance on the, on the Christian walk that is the path toward righteousness, toward Christ himself, today we find that balance played out with one topic, the sixth commandment. So let's stand and read Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26 together. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. 
So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come quickly to offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Let's pray as you're seated. Lord, again, we're so eager to come to your word. We pray that you would open it up to our minds and to our hearts. Spirit, we pray that you would enable us to understand, give us wisdom to apply it. We need your help here. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. We're going to hear that formula six times in Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus applying the principle that we learned in 17 through 20. That he fulfills the law. As the ultimate author of the scriptures, you'll remember Jesus has the authority to do this. This is Jesus exercising that authority. Matthew chapter 5 is filled with authoritative statements by Christ on how we should understand the law. So we should make much of that formula in our hearts and in our minds right now. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And it's right that we should start here with the reality that Jesus has all authority. All authority to say exactly that. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And a great part of being transformed by the renewal of your mind is understanding that Jesus has all authority. Jesus is king. Matthew's constantly trying to remind us of that, right? Jesus is king. And He has ultimate authority in how we understand God's revelation. So as we approach any of these six statements throughout the rest of the chapter, we have to remember that Jesus isn't nullifying anything. He's not abolishing anything. As the ultimate authority of the scriptures, Jesus fills it up. That's what he's doing right now. Jesus is going to fill up the sixth commandment. That's what we see in this text. The sixth commandment, In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, is well known. Many of you had to memorize it growing up. Many of us should keep it in mind going forward. You shall not murder. Easy enough. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. The second part there, whoever murders will be liable to judgment, is not an exact phrase from any particular part of the Old Testament. But it's a summary of what the Pentateuch taught. Judgment for murder would be the death penalty. That's the judgment, right? Genesis chapter 9, really early on, before Israel is a nation, God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. You can find similar statements in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Numbers 35, etc., etc. It's all over. So we have a pretty straightforward prohibition. Don't murder people or else. Right? 
Simple enough. It's not really hard to keep. In fact, uh, at surface level, I'd say, well, I'd hope I, I hope I'd be right in saying we're all doing a pretty good job with this commandment, unless you have something to confess, and in that case, um, let's do that later with the authorities present. But as we've already read, Jesus is going to take us beyond the surface level. He wants our righteousness to be deeper. So first, first, Jesus teaches us that the sixth commandment is deeper than murder. But I say to you, verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. If Jesus were like the scribes and the Pharisees, if he was just like them, another teacher like them, we'd expect him to say something much different than what he says right here. Remember, the scribes and Pharisees were concerned with making the law wider, not deeper. They, they added stuff to the commandments to make them easier to keep in their minds, but they really didn't do anything at all except make the whole nation of Israel cringe and be crushed down under the weight of the law. So if Jesus was a Pharisee, we'd expect him to say something like in verse 22, but I say to you that real righteousness is to not kill at all. Righteous people don't kill in war. They don't defend capital punishment. They don't even kill animals. We might expect that kind of widening of the law. You see how that widens it? You can't commit murder if you don't kill, right? That adds a hedge. But that kind of righteousness is only concerned with what you do in an outward way. It's only concerned with outward action. In other words, to use Jesus' phrase, it's pretty new paint on a tomb filled with dead man's bones. So Jesus doesn't widen the law here. Jesus deepens the law. Whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So it's not just murder that we're judged for. It's the anger. The same punishment for murder in verse 21 associated with judgment in the Old Testament, the death penalty is found here in verse 22. The one who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Judgment is death. So if you get angry with your brother, you deserve the death penalty. But Jesus goes on. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, so wait. The commandment, the sixth commandment, first said that if we murdered someone, the punishment would be the death penalty. And now... If we get angry with someone or insult them in some way, we're liable to go before the court, receive the death penalty, and burn in hell? Is that really what Jesus is saying? Yes. Yeah. That's what he's saying. Now, before we jump to asking, well, what about this or... What about that? We need to sit with Jesus' words a little bit. We did this last week. This will be a recurring theme. We're going to have to sit for an uncomfortably long period of time with Jesus' statements. We want the appropriate amount of time to pass before we try to 
answer those questions. So let's do that right now. Let's sit with it. Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother, you'll be liable to the judgment. Now, some later manuscripts include an added phrase that made this say, whoever's angry with a brother without cause will be liable to judgment. Maybe you are reading from the King James or the New King James this morning. Fine Bibles, this is not a criticism, but those are included because they were using later manuscripts. The earliest manuscripts, the ones closest to the original writings, don't have that phrase, so it was probably added by a well-meaning scribe or monk later on. The blow that Jesus gives here in verse 22 can't be softened so easily with the phrase without a cause. He says, whoever's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So here's what's uncomfortable. Have you been angry with your brother? By brother, Jesus means a member of the community. Of course, families included. And of course, church members would be included. But when Jesus addresses first century Israelites in the region of Galilee, he's talking about all of Israel. Israelites were considered brothers and sisters. So really, any one of your neighbors, anyone in the community counts here. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. If you have the new international version, you'll notice that they translate it a bit more literally. This second statement. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the court. Raka was not a very nice insult. It's like calling someone a stupid idiot, but worse. It was basically a swear word. And Jesus says, if we do this, we'll be liable to the council. And culturally, that meant the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish court. But no one was actually taking their brother to court over an insult because someone called them an idiot. Jesus has in mind the eternal court of the divine judge. If we insult a brother, we should expect judgment from God. And to make it even clearer, Jesus gives a further example. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. And to call somebody a fool was to question their devotion to God. We associate fool similarly maybe with Raka, only softer. It's not that big of a deal to call somebody a fool. It could even be a joke. But for them, it was a judgment, a character judgment. The nuance is lost on us who speak English. It's lost on us in the ESV. We don't connect calling somebody a fool with the hell of fire. But Jesus is making a play on words. If he was speaking in English, he may have said something like, and whoever says, go to hell, will be sent to hell. The heading of my Bible here, over this section, verses 21 through 26, says anger. If you have headings or you have the ESV, yours says that too. The NIV has the heading murder. But neither of these headings really capture the essence of what Jesus is condemning here. Attached to the idea of murder in Jesus' teaching is everything leading up to it. Wrath, hatred, anger, 
personal offense, insults, name-calling, quarreling, slandering, brawling, gossip. All of those fit into the categorically deeper place Jesus is bringing us. We're reminded of 1 John 3, 15, which says everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The command not to murder turns out to be a lot like the starting line of a race. In his law, God gave the greatest example of wrongful wrath as a line not to cross. You shall not murder. But if we're tempted to think that we've rightfully kept that law, if we haven't committed first-degree murder, then we have it wrong, Jesus says. Righteousness demands more than mere abstaining from killing somebody and murder. If a runner stayed at the starting line of a race and stared down at the starting line and congratulated themselves for not going backward over that starting line, they'd be doing a really poor job running the race. They wouldn't be a very good runner. That's what Jesus is telling us here. Those who think they've kept the commandment to not murder simply because they haven't committed the very worst possible act are not really righteous at all. They're a runner staring down at the starting line, happy they're not going backward. But Jesus calls us to run toward him, to run the race, to run toward a deeper righteousness. If murder is the worst possible outcome, then everything leading toward it needs to be avoided like the plague, right? If we're constantly given over to anger, but never murder anybody, we're no better off than the murderer Jesus is describing. We're liable to the same punishment, the death penalty. And now it seems like an unachievable standard. And in one sense it is. We need the grace of God here, right? Don't we? We need the grace of God. It's only by God's grace that we can bear the fruit of the Spirit that are opposed to all of these things, like love and joy and peace. But in another sense, if we think of Jesus' statement as a standard, now I can't even get angry with a brother. If we think of it as a new line, then we have it all wrong. He's not simply saying, I'm making this harder for you now. Now you can't even be angry. He's not doing that. He's calling us to himself to go deeper. He's not concerned with creating a new law. He's not abolishing the old to give us the new. He's filling it up. So as we pursue Jesus with all we've got, to use that runner's metaphor again, we'll leave behind the starting line. And we'll soon leave behind other things too, by God's grace. Murder will be well in the rearview mirror. But this marathon of righteousness will sometimes feel like we're running through a bog or a swamp or sand. It won't be easy going. It's hard not to give over, for instance, to an attitude of anger if that's been your disposition all your life. 
Well, let's talk realistically here. If you've worn a garment of anger to protect yourself from hurt, to guard against other people, it's going to be hard to shed that garment. For some of us, being quick to insult is like a personality trait we like. Some of us fly off the handle much too quickly. We have a short temper and we think that that's just part of our personality. Some of us are overly sensitive about things that we know people didn't intend. All of this is included here. This is the righteousness Jesus is drawing us toward. It will feel like through this race we're failing all the time as we encounter new things that if given the opportunity by the devil would result in murder. We'll we'll encounter them all the time. As soon as we deal with one, we'll notice another. We'll be angry again. And we'll need to repent. And praise the Lord, we can. But through the Spirit, we can have freedom from sin and victory over sin. And eventually when Jesus returns, he's going to get rid of sin completely. Praise God. The race will not be over for you until death or the return of Christ. And that's okay. We can't stop running the race. Now, we've sat in it for a little while. The uncomfortable statement. So to the what about this or what about that questions. I don't have a lot of time to deal with all of them. There's many. And first I'd like to say... If our inclination when we are encountering a statement like this from Jesus, if our inclination is to first ask really quickly the what about questions, I'd say that it betrays a heart that is ready to excuse sin, eager to excuse sin. So it's worth examining our hearts if that's the case this morning. But there are some questions worth pondering. What about when Jesus turns over the tables in the temple? Is Jesus' righteous anger there actually righteous? Can he be angry? Every gospel recounts the story of Jesus flipping over the tables and driving out the money changer from the temple. And yes, Jesus is righteous in his anger. But it would be irresponsible of us to think that since Jesus, who was absolutely perfect... Since Jesus could get angry righteously, then so can we. Now, I think that righteous anger is possible. But when we look at the world, when we look at the world and we behold all of the injustice and the oppression in society and we see rampant sin therein and a culture of death that surrounds us, Anger over those things is not an inappropriate response. They should, in a sense, make us angry because God doesn't like them. And we should like the things God likes and hate the things God hates. We should long for Jesus to make them right. But all too often we think we have righteous anger when we don't. There's so much nuance with our emotion. There's so much sin mixed into every part of us in our thought process that it's it's difficult to separate anger at sin over anger at offense. I'll give you an example. An example from my own heart this week. 
since moving to Florida, I've gotten really into hockey. And uh, who knew that it would take moving to a summer state to get into a winter sport? Uh, that's kind of just part of my personality, I think. Like, when I latch on to something, I go really deep into it. And if it sticks, it sticks. And that's where I'm at with hockey. I'm really into it. If you are, I'd love to talk to you about it. But we're in Florida, so who knows? <laughs> there was a hockey goalie this last week um, for, that plays for the San Jose Sharks who recently got in trouble. Maybe you saw it in the news, a little, little headline. Who got in trouble with the press for refusing to wear a, a pride jersey for warm-ups before a game because he's a Christian. Uh, and he released a statement before the game and it was really thoughtful and he said how he valued every human life and et cetera, et cetera. Everybody has a right to expression, et cetera. It's all really good. He did a good job. But nevertheless, the, the press just lit him up. You've seen it. You know what I'm talking about. They called him a bigot. They called him a homophobe and so on and so forth. Okay, so setting aside the conversation about politics and sports and the right to expression and the LGBTQ movement, all of that, set it aside. I found myself getting angry over this because they almost, the press that is, almost intentionally misunderstood the goalie's motivation, his, his intention. It, I felt the injustice of it. And then I started to feel personally associated with him. It was like they were attacking me too because I'm a Christian. Have you felt like this? And then so quickly, my heart started to turn sour against these people so fast. I, I immediately lumped myself into a tribe who was over and set against people who were attacking me and my people. And I started to, to hate them because they hated me and they were attacking me and my tribe. Have you felt like that before? And then I got a gut check really fast. Because I'm preaching on this text this week. <laughs> I wasn't righteous in my anger anymore. So I had to repent and give it to the Lord. I was right to be angry at the injustice of the situation. But then I let it devolve in my heart. And it happened so fast. And I think the enemy sometimes tricks us into thinking that we're righteous in our anger when we really aren't. We might be right to be angry at certain things in the world, certain injustices or sins, but when that anger slips into personal offense as if we've been slighted, then we're on real thin ice. And I think we've seen a lot of so-called righteous anger over the last few years that we should be very skeptical of. While Jesus can call Pharisees fools, like he does in Matthew 23 without sinning, it's hardly likely that we can pull that off. And when Jesus does suffer personal insult and injustice against himself in his trial, scourging, crucifixion, you'll recall that Jesus does not get angry. He doesn't attack back. 1 Peter 2.23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
That's how we need to be in the face of injustice and offense. Now, I know that this question isn't the only what about question you might have. There's a lot, a lot of conversation to have. The topic is very nuanced. And the truth is, Jesus is intentionally presenting us with a straightforward, unnuanced statement about things that lead to murder. But instead of making more lines and more barriers not to cross, he wants us to use wisdom. He wants, to, he wants us to think through these questions well. For instance, here's another one that I'm not going to answer. What about the natural, emotional, you might call it, anger that arises with competition? Many of us have played sports all of our lives. We all know someone, at least, who's really competitive. Where's the line? Where's the line to be crossed into sin when we're playing sports? Or, for some of us, board games. (laughs) These are conversations Jesus wants us to have together. As he leads us deeper into righteousness, not setting a new standard of law, he wants us to use godly wisdom by the Spirit. Jesus gives us a hard statement here in verse 22. And we need to use it to examine our hearts. And we need to be slow to ask what about before we let that happen. And in verses 23 through 26, Jesus gives us too many parables that speak to, second, the urgency of reconciliation. Let's read those again, starting in 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. I call these two illustrations parables because they both demonstrate the same truth that may not be super evident unless we understand them as parables. If we took these verses as simple commands, then we'd have a rule about offering in the temple and a rule about lawsuits and debt. And neither of those fit particularly well with the topic at hand. They must be telling us something slightly deeper. They must have the same moral of the story, to say it a different way. So in verses 23 through 24, Jesus tells us that if we find ourselves offering a gift at the altar in the temple, but remember that a brother has something against us, then we should leave the offering, reconcile with that brother, and then finish the sacrifice. That parable makes the most sense if we remember that Jesus is in Galilee. If you really like geography, it's going to come into play. It's amazing how maps help you understand the Bible more. The people listening to Jesus right now would have been shocked by Jesus' hyperbole right here. Imagine you're a resident of Galilee and have to take a week's long trip down to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple. The only place you are allowed to offer a sacrifice. 
Then imagine it's finally your turn to offer that sacrifice, only to remember that someone has something against you. Jesus tells you it's more expedient, more pragmatic for you to leave your sacrifice there, take another week's journey north, solve your personal issues, take another week's journey south, then finish your sacrifice. That's pretty extreme. But it teaches us two things. First, God doesn't want your worship if you're neglecting to reconcile with a brother or sister. It would be a waste to offer the sacrifice in the temple and then reconcile. The sacrifice would be meaningless because it would be empty ritual. God cares about our personal relationships and the way that our relationship with him has an effect on our relationship with others. So a heart that is fine with their relationships being in shambles because of anger or offense or grudges, but thinks that God approves of their worship because they followed some ritual or they attend church all the time, that is a heart that is out of line with the word of God. That's the warning of 1 Corinthians 11. Maybe you're familiar with it. We read 1 Corinthians 11 every time we take communion. Those who eat and drink judgment upon themselves, Paul says, are those aren't just those with unconfessed sin. The whole context of that passage has to do with brothers and sisters in the Corinthian church separating themselves, the rich and the poor, unreconciled, offense and hurt. And Paul says that separation, personal broken relationships in the church, is the reason they're eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. God cares a lot about our relationships. And our worship is meaningless if we don't keep them in mind. The second thing we learn from this parable is that it's more urgent to reconcile with a brother than to offer a sacrifice. We might put verses 23 and 24 in a more modern illustration. If you've driven all the way to church and you live towns away, but you remember that someone back home has a problem with you that's gone unresolved, then leave church in the middle of the sermon and settle the issue. Only then return to worship. Nobody's getting up. That's what Jesus is saying. It's more urgent to do that than to continue in unreconciled relationships with brothers and sisters. That's the urgency involved here. And notice how throughout these verses, the anger that Jesus is dealing with is an interpersonal anger. He isn't telling us that if we get angry when we stub our toe, we're sinning. But he is saying that if we get angry when we stub our toe, and because of that anger, lash out against somebody else, like our spouse or our children, then we've sinned. The interpersonal relationships are what's at issue. It's up of the utmost urgency that we reconcile those relationships now. It's worth leaving a sacrifice at the altar to travel another week north to do just that. The second parable in verses 25 through 26 are even more clear on that point. Jesus here tells us that we should settle out of court with someone who's suing us 
so that we aren't thrown into prison. Now, that might be good legal advice. But Jesus is telling us to urgently resolve our interpersonal issues before we face judgment, divine judgment. God is the judge who will exact the last penny from the debt incurred because of our anger and our insults. But before that happens, we should make it a priority to reconcile quickly with those whom we offend. And if we hold lifelong grudges, or if someone holds a grudge over you that you know about, it's our duty to end that as soon as possible. There's urgency involved here, and I hope you're getting that. Like somebody being dragged to court who's going to spend the rest of their life imprisoned, so are you if you have people you're unreconciled with in your life. And you may notice that both of those examples that he gives in 23 through 26 are of other people being angry at us. We may think that's odd. But we need to remember that Jesus is taking us deeper. He doesn't just want us to deal with our anger over others. He wants us to deal with other people's anger over us. Now, Jesus does say in Mark eleven twenty five, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. He wants us to forgive others before we worship. But Jesus takes it a step further in the Sermon on the Mount here in the Gospel of Matthew. Don't just resolve your anger in your own heart. Resolve others' anger over you. Seek to resolve the anger in other people's heart. That's deeper righteousness. We can't hope to keep the sixth commandment without taking all of this into account. These these parables call us into positive action, not just passive rule keeping. It's not just that we should not get angry. It's that we should be peacekeepers, right? We'll remember the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And as peacemakers, we should be seeking to overturn the hatred of the world and the hatred that we find in our own hearts. And finally, we should seek to examine ourselves again. I've said that many times this morning. But Jesus' statements beg for it. Like I said at the start, I feel like they've been doing that to me all week. We should examine ourselves with the word of God again. None of us stand up to this commandment in our own righteousness. None of us stand up to it, especially if all that's involved is keeping it. It's only by God's grace that we're saved. We cannot get to the depths of righteousness that Jesus reveals here without first putting on his righteousness. We need his righteousness to go deeper. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to do these things. We need that first. We can't hope to do them on our own. And the good news is that Jesus, who fulfilled the law for us, also went to the cross to die for our inability to keep the law. Praise the Lord. And now, through the power of the Spirit, which is given to every believer, God himself, we've been given the ability to run the race of righteousness that Jesus is bringing us on. It's not all hopeless and lost. 
as if Jesus is giving us something unaccomplishable here. It's possible if only through the grace of God and through the power of the Spirit. We need Him. Amen? Praise the Lord that we have a Savior to turn to when we're tempted to think that we can either keep this commandment in our own strength or are completely unable to keep it because of our weakness, even after we have the Spirit. That's the lie of the enemy. We are saved unto holiness. We are saved not so that we can continue to sin. We are not given license. We are saved so that we can live in the freedom and joy of holiness. These words of Christ should be brought to our hearts and used to examine right now. But they should also be used as encouragement to worship. They reveal our need of him every day, right? We need him a lot. They reveal constantly our need of him every day as we're confronted with sin again and again. So the song that we get to sing together next is from the inside out. And it starts like this. Maybe you know the song. I want you to see it again with fresh eyes. It starts like this. A thousand times I've failed. Still your mercy remains. And should I stumble again, still I'm caught in your grace. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Can you say hallelujah? Hallelujah. We have a good Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we need you. This is hard to do. Not just to not murder people, that might seem easy enough to us, but Lord, you're calling us to a deeper righteousness, an examination of our hearts that we're really uncomfortable with because it reveals to us the depths of our sin and the length that you went to to die for them, to deal with them. Lord, we need you. We pray for wisdom to know how to apply this well. We pray for good conversations around these questions we might have about your statements here. We pray that they would push us further into righteousness, not into license to sin or into a temptation to think we can do it all on our own, but we pray we would be pushed to rely upon you and seek to live up to the name Christian. We love you. We, we thank you so much for your constant grace toward us every day. In Jesus' name, amen.